You've taken your first step into a larger world. Ho, 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 and Merry Life Day. I'm Baz McAllister. And I'm Rowan Williams. And welcome to Force Material once more, the podcast that tells you all about the secrets and source material of Star Wars. That's right. And this week we have something a little bit special for you in honor of the season. That's right. Now, Baz, uh, what what do you think of when I say uh, living on a prayer? Bad medicine. Wanted dead or alive. I think of pulling unwise moves in discos in Glasgow in the 1990s, um, but uh, but I think of great songs. Great songs, that's right. Did you know they may not have ever existed if it hadn't been for the success of Star Wars? Mm. This week on Force Material, uh, we're going to tell you all about how John Bon Jovi's first ever job as a recording artist was guesting on an album of Christmas songs starring the vocal pseudo-singing talents of Anthony C-3PO Daniels and propped up by Disco Money. Intrigued? Very much so. Let's get into it. But before that, we should talk about the most famous Star Wars Christmas debacle. Yeah, so there's a chequered history of Star Wars and Christmas, isn't there? Yeah, we're, we're sure that as avid listeners and avid fans, you probably know about everything surrounding the holiday special and its storied legendary past. Yeah, so... It's funny, I mean, now when we think Star Wars and Christmas, we really only have positive associations. I mean, you know, uh, the last three years we've had movies come out around Christmas time. And for me, Christmas just is the Star Wars holiday now. It's just all Star Wars all the time. But it wasn't always like that. No. But, well, further to that, though, um, the Vulptexes and Create, I find very Christmassy. Yes. And I find Starkiller Base very Christmassy. Yes. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, they're, they're going out of their way to make everything feel... <laughs> Very Christmassy on screen as well. As I well. was thinking about that the other day. Yeah, like, what is it? Even even the films feel Christmassy somehow. Not in a you know, oh, Die Hard's a Christmas movie sort of way. Yeah, but yeah. Uh, but even you know, John, John Williams' use of the Celeste on uh, on in Ray's theme. Mm-hmm. That's very Christmassy. Yep, it's got a very Christmas feel <laughs> to it. Yes, but it was not always thus in terms of positive Christmas Star Wars stuff. Um, So the holiday special dropped in in 1978. Yeah. The year after Star Wars had it really big. Yeah. So this was probably the first time that Star Wars was ruined forever. It was 1978. Can you imagine if they had Twitter back then? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. So it was a, a TV movie special. What, about an hour and... 30 minutes, maybe two hours long. I don't know. Yeah, like at that. a certain yeah. point, you just... Yeah, with, with advert commercial breaks in the middle as well. Yeah. Yeah, but uh, just think of all the things that we got from that. Think of all the wonderful things that we got to see. Well, we got Luke with a mullet. <laughs> we did. And, and his, uh, with his 1970s football player haircut. Yeah, and yeah. his just incredibly <laughs> white face. Like, I don't know what was... What, yeah. we, uh, uh, this is, I guess this is all part of the urban legends about Mark Hamill and, the, and the, his car crash and... Is that mm. why Luke looks so strange in the the holiday oh, special? It might be. I don't know. I, I, I don't think we've ever managed to get to the bottom of that. Not even from the, the, the mouth of Mark Hamill himself. Well, that might have to be a future yeah. force material investigation. Yep. George uh, Lucas and Mark Hamill's love of speed and it, how it got them into trouble. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Mm. But we also got uh, B. Arthur from the Golden Girls running a cantina. Oh, we sure did. <laughs> uh, we got Carrie Fisher uh, singing with the aid of... Uh, 
perhaps a substance or two. <laughs> and we got a cheeky yeah. Christmas uh, nose beer, maybe. <laughs> Very Christmassy. And uh, we got Chewie's weird family, including his perverted dad, essentially watching pornography. Yeah. Holographic pornography. Yeah. There's some things that are bad where you sort of go, oh, like, I can understand how they got there. Like, it's not great, but you can see the intentions behind everyone involved with the project yeah. and you can see where it went wrong. The holiday special, I, I, I've never been able to understand how anyone at any level of the chain thought that was going to be good. Yeah. I, I, I kind of don't understand how they could write that as a script where it's just 30 minutes at the start of Lukey's rolling around with each other and not speaking English and yeah. not even being subtitled. Yeah. I Look, I'd say that's cocaine and that's, <laughs> that's... But it's also the high that only having the most successful film of all time can bring you. You know, the yeah. natural high of being on top of the world and also <laughs> not really wanting anything to do with the... Great access to illegal narcotics. Yeah, well, that's right. <laughs> but uh, they, they were probably at a point where they thought they could do no wrong and the holiday special quickly... Uh, uh, corrected their, their their thinking there. So so yeah, it's fair to say <laughs> Star Wars and Christmas not traditionally uh, you know the best of pals yeah. before before recent years or or Life Day. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Star Wars the, and Life Day. The plot of that was all about uh, Chewie wanting to get home to his family for Life Day. The, well, as sketchy as the plot was. Yeah. So that was Star Wars's history with Life Day, but Star Wars actually had a history with Christmas itself. And it's lesser known. I'm betting that some of you may not even ever have really heard of this and certainly won't know about the Bon Jovi connection. But uh, but here we go. Let's take a deep dive into Christmas in the Stars, shall we? Yeah, and it's amazing because this is only coming two years after the holiday special. So this is the holiday special. I mean, the effect that this had on George Lucas, I mean, he has... Uh, forever banned any sort of official release of the holiday special from getting out there. The closest we've gotten is the Boba Fett short that was part of the holiday special was included as an Easter egg on the uh, the Blu-rays that came out in 2011. But other than that, no word of an official holiday special release. So, so what you're saying is if, if we've seen the holiday special, we're dirty thieves and pirates and rebel scum. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Godspeed, rebels. But... Uh, <laughs> But so so you know clearly he's not a fan. He's he he realized how potentially catastrophic this was for the franchise, and yet two years later, he's happy to sign up for Christmas in the Stars. Yeah. So this all began in uh, in nineteen eighty with two New York City based record producers. There was a guy called Domenico Minardo, who you'll probably know better as as the name Miko. Mm. Uh, he was a producer first, but. He was also a session musician, well-known trombone player, multi-instrumentalist, arranger. He kind of did everything. Yeah. He was an Italian-American guy who was born in Pennsylvania. And his producing partner was Tony Bon Jovi. Now that sounds familiar. Yeah, no, we should we should take the time to spell that there because Tony spelled his surname B-O-N-G-I-O-V-I. Yeah, that's All right. Word, right? So he was the producer he was the producer for some real heavy hitters for the Ramones, for Gloria Gaynor, did some Aerosmith, did some work with Talking Heads. And he happened to be a second cousin of a guy called John Bon Jovi. Now, this is going to become important. Yeah, same surname spelling, Yeah, by the way. <laughs> so, um, as an engineer, Tony uh, worked with some heavy hitters, too. He, he ran the console for Jimi Hendrix early in his career before he got into producing. So, uh, so these two guys had some serious clout. Mm. And they had form for taking the Star Wars ball and running with it. Christmas in the Stars would not be their first Star Wars foray. 
And this is probably where the question of like, how could George have authorized this two years after the holiday special finds its answer? Because yes. these guys had produced Star Wars and other galactic funk, uh, an album of disco fired Star Wars theme music. Uh, that was kind of a phenomenon in yeah. 1977. And it was weird because they, they kind of started off on a bit of a dare. It yeah. Like they, they kind of did it for, for jokes because they thought, this will be a bit of a laugh. We'll, we'll, we'll get some Star Wars music. It's really popular. We'll uh, we'll run it through like some kind of synths and stuff. And yeah, we'll, we'll get John Williams music and we'll we'll um, funk it up a little bit. And to be fair, like Miko loved Star Wars. Like he'd been to see Star Wars ten times in its opening week. Yeah. Like he, there was a genuine uh, passion for the material here. Yeah, but they had to go seeking permission. So um, at that point, the permissions came from a guy called Neil Bogart from Casablanca Records. So Miko contacted him and. Uh, he gave his sign off on it, and within three weeks, basically, they were quick workers. They arranged and produced the entire album of mm. Disco. So they thought it would sell a couple of thousand copies off the back of the popularity of Star Wars when they put it out later in 1977. Guess how many copies it did sell? <laughs> two and a half million singles and two million albums. Uh, so the album went to number six in the Billboard album charts. Uh, and one track, Star Wars theme slash Cantina Band, spent three weeks at number one in the singles chart. If you're not familiar with this album, go back and have a listen to that. If you can, it must be on Spotify. I'm pretty sure it's on Spotify. Yeah. Christmas in the Stars is definitely on Spotify. Yeah. So if you want to listen to that before you listen to the rest of this, it's definitely on there. <laughs> Although it might put you off. It might. Put, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Don't listen to it. Actually. Well, then. I'll tell you what. Star Wars and other galactic funk is solid. It's it's really it's a really good time. So this galactic funk episode thing made so much money for for Tony and Miko that uh, Tony Bon Jovi was able to build his own record studio off the profits. Um, That's a place in Manhattan called Power Station on West 53rd Street, and it's still there. Um, Yeah, and if if you're familiar with rock music at all, you're probably familiar with the Power Station. You would have seen it in heaps of liner notes over the years. Uh, So the Power Station's a former Con Edison power plant building. It's still in operation, and it's considered one of the best studios in the world. Uh, there's so many albums have been recorded there by the likes of Springsteen, John Lennon, The Clash, Billy Joel, Iggy Pop, Madonna, David Bowie, Joan Jett, Sting, Neil Young, Blondie, Kings of Leon, Arctic Monkeys, (laughs) and they've all got some Star Wars disco tunes to thank for it. That's it. (laughs) That is mind blowing. (laughs) It's it's even more mind blowing than the Bon Jovi connection. connection. Yeah, Yeah, it really is. Yeah. So, uh, and legend has it that Tony made so much money off this, more than he'd anticipated making, that he reworked his plan for the studio to build a special garage for their sports cars, which, of course, they went out and bought when they made all the, the Star Wars bank. Yeah. Um, so they could, uh, like, drive their cars into the ground floor and into a lift that brought the cars up to the second floor garage so they didn't have to worry about parking on Manhattan streets. Yeah. It's Brilliant. really hard to feel sorry for these guys when they complain about uh, record sales going down the drain, isn't it? That's what money's for, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. <laughs> Building a garage for your sports car. It's true. It's true. <laughs> so why would they not want to attempt to do that again? And so, so that's what, you know, that's where the idea of doing a Star Wars Christmas album came in. And they managed to secure permission from Lucasfilm. Uh, Miko wrote Lucas a, a nine page letter about how great this album was going to be. Then they spoke on the phone. Uh, Lucas put in his two cents. So, um, it started when, uh, that then that Miko and, and Tony started to, um, put out the call for original songs. And this is where a guy called Maury Yeston comes into the story. Mm. And Maury Yeston was at that time uh, working at Yale as an associate professor. He was in his mid-30s. 
but in his heart of hearts he was a struggling composer who'd been writing songs since he was six years old and studying music his whole life. Um, Yeston was working on some musical theatre at that point, and a friend of his who knew Miko mentioned that Miko was having a lot of trouble on his latest project. Um, Yeston's mate told him, It's Miko Minardo, a great trombone player, and he's working with Tony Bon Jovi and some other people. They're wanting to do a Star Wars Christmas album. They got permission from George Lucas. They're going around to every major writer they can find and they're saying, could you contribute a song? They can't get enough material and they can't figure out to hold it all together. Mm. So Yeston met with Miko and he said, look, this may sound ridiculous to you, but if you want to do a Star Wars Christmas album, you have to have a story. You have to have some spine, even the lightest spine to hang it on. You can't just put a bunch of songs up on the stage. You need a story. You need a title. You need a concept. You can't just randomly go talk to a bunch of different people and say, can you give us a song that has something to do with Star Wars and Christmas without unifying it in some way, without there being a concept? This is obviously Christmas in the world of Star Wars, which means this is in a galaxy far, far away, thousands of years ago. It's not now. So call it Christmas in the Stars. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, he must have been on some of that... um... Broadway stuff. <laughs> um, but, you know, he's he's kind of right. That Can you imagine what a bunch of Christmas carols with vague Star Wars references thrown in just put together on a record would sound like? It would, I can, it would... because that's pretty much what this album is. <laughs> Maury Yeston may have had grand ambitions of weaving a story throughout the album and, uh, and, and, and convincingly uh, showing us what Christmas might have been like in a galaxy far, far away, but... Uh, for me, the end result is a, a bunch of Christmas uh, yeah. carols with some Star Wars references. It's not much of a story, is it? No. Um, so the the concept that he came up with um, was come up with on the spot, and and to be honest, it wasn't very complex. Um, the idea is yes, that Christmas is celebrated a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, and R two D two and C three P O are the stars of the show here. They're drafted in to help S Claus or Sunny Claus, Santa Claus's alien cousin to make toys for children throughout the galaxy in a workshop staffed by other completely rubbish droids. I mean, there's the f- why couldn't it just have been Santa Claus? Why, <laughs> why did it need to be S-Claus or Sunny Claus? Or... It had to be an alien, I suppose. Yeah. I don't know. But how do, you, how do you have an alien cousin? Like, yeah. Uh, isn't that completely an oxymoron? It, well, it raises a lot of questions about the Claus family <laughs> tree. It does, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> But you know, um, Yeston had a had a had a kid who was completely obsessed with Star Wars, and that's where a lot of this was coming from. Um, you know, he had a seven year old son who wanted to do something fun, silly, entertaining, literally on the level of Sesame Street. <laughs> I mean, he's probably degrading Sesame Street a little bit there <laughs> yeah. to say that it's on the level of Christmas in the Stars, but you can see what he's going for. <laughs> yeah. So, so uh, as far as he got with the plot in terms of like this being a musical strung together over nine songs is. That yeah, S Claus is going to show up in nine songs time, and we better have these toys built and sort it out. <laughs> or we're going to be in trouble, and that's pretty much it. Yeah, yeah. just some good old fashioned droid slavery. <laughs> yeah. So um, again, like Miko and his team worked quickly. Yeston didn't start writing until the U.S. autumn of 1980, so probably around September-ish, and the album was slated for late November. So Miko and Tony were already in the studio laying down tracks while Yeston was just busy writing the book, as it were, and the lyrics. And I say book because there's a lot of speaking. Mm. There's a lot of speaking. Daniels has a large amount of, uh, Anthony Daniels who played C-3PO, large amount of speaking parts and soliloquizing. So Yeston was treating it like it was musical theatre. That's his thing. Uh, he'd go on to become a pretty famous Tony Award winning Broadway playwright in his own right. 
His first big hit was the musical Nine in 1982, uh, and he wrote Titanic the Musical, which premiered in 1997, uh, and both won the Tony for Best Musical and Best Score. Uh, after Nine became a hit, he threw in his teaching job, he got into Broadway full-time. Did you know, though, Baz, hmm. this is not uh, Maury Yeston's only Star Wars connection? I did not know that. Okay, so Maury Yeston, um, as well as collaborate... So he did Christmas in the Stars. You love to spring these things on me. <laughs> <laughs> well... Uh, I raised this... my Karelian eggnog. <laughs> this is actually... Uh, this, is a, this is a forced material story from the vaults here, just quickly, but... Uh, uh, Yeston has come up in forced material before on the blog, because... Somehow, despite the uh, the abject failure of Christmas in the Stars, Maury Yeston uh, was recruited to make a Star Wars musical uh, in the 80s. So, George Lucas tried to make a Star Wars musical <laughs> Star with Star Wars Har- turn off the Death Star. <laughs> <laughs> so, George Lucas tried to make a Star Wars musical uh, with the famous producer Harold Prince in the 80s. Um, now, this is all... Uh, I think this was uh, Robert Lopez, the the EGOT winning uh, composer who uh, mentioned this uh, story. It might have been on uh, on the old uh, Oxygen podcast on Rebel Force Radio, which mm-hmm. I don't think they do anymore. But uh, a, a while ago, there he talked about this Star Wars musical that was going to happen in the nineteen eighties, um, and it was going to be Harold Prince, and so he was known for collaborating with people like Stephen Sondheim, Andrew Lloyd Webber. Um, you know, shows like Phantom of the Opera, Ovida, like he's a big time guy. Mm-hmm. He contacted Maury Yeston about bringing Star Wars to the stage. Now, apparently, uh, it didn't get very far, but basically, you know, we mentioned earlier that, that Maury Yeston is known for writing, uh, Nine and Titanic the yeah. musical. So one of the songs from Titanic the musical actually came from the Star Wars musical that he tried to do in the 80s that got shelved. Get out of town. No, for real. Um, so he... So were they on a Star Destroyer that was uh, that <laughs> struck an asteroid? And... That, that would make sense. But no, it was... Uh, it was you know, you know, obviously in Star Wars, everyone who listens to this podcast will be familiar with the binary sunset moment. Luke looking out at the twin sons of Tatooine. Uh, now in musicals, there's a thing that the I Want song where, you know, the character tells you how dissatisfied they are with their life and how they the, the great things they want to go do with their life instead. My shot. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so this song was going to be Luke Skywalker's I Want song, and it was going to come at the same point of the musical that the, the twin sons do in the movie. Uh, and the lyrics went, I believe he said the lyrics went, uh, look up there, way up high, one day soon, I will fly. Anyway... The, the Star Wars musical got shelved. Um, he was going to try and use it for a Disney musical animated movie at one point. That got shelved as well. And, and that's, he that's, ended... Judging by those lyrics, that sounds about the level. Yeah, it does. <laughs> but somehow, yeah, he did end up using it for Titanic the musical uh, much, much later. So... Look, you'll you'll use everything, you know. It's all it's all gonna it's come in handy at some point. Uh, but it, yeah, it started out as Luke Skywalker's binary sunset song. Of course, you know the irony of all this is um, you don't need an "I want" song for the binary sunset moment. It already is an "I want" song with the with the music that John Williams uh, yeah. provided. And in the Last Jedi, it's an "I wanted" song. Yeah, for exactly. The binary sunset. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, Maury Yeston trying to uh, unnecessarily add lyrics to the Star Wars universe since <laughs> 1980, I guess. Yeah. He was pretty committed to his craft, though, even back then. 
Um, well, Miko and Tony were, were treating this Christmas project in the same way they treated Galactic Funk as a bit of a, a funny kind of knockabout thing to do. Maury was treating it as a serious Broadway show. Of course he was. He really got his headspace into this thing. Um, probably to a disturbing level. So <laughs> he, he started with an opening number to set the scene, right? And, and that was the title track, Christmas in the Stars, where the droids are making toys. I guess that's the I Want song of Christmas in the Stars, in a way. I suppose so, yeah. Where, where they're setting up the story. Um, here are some of the lyrics to that. I've got mistletoe and holly. I've got 20 different kinds of lollipops with 20 different kinds of chocolate bars. Everyone will be excited. Even I am quite delighted and ready for Christmas in the Stars, says Daniels. Mm. And I say says because he doesn't really sing it. <laughs> no, <laughs> Sings would be giving him a little too much yeah. credit for this album. Yeah. Uh, so Yester knew that time was of the essence here. He knew that he didn't have time to screw around. He just had to go. He was writing at a million miles an hour. He knows that a lot of what he wrote lyrics-wise was was cheesy, but he doesn't care. To this day, he's done interviews. He's unapologetic about it. And you've got to keep in mind, like, he was making this album for his seven-year-old son. Does that sound like anyone else, you know, trying to make excuses? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> is this for Jet? I don't care if you guys don't like it. Jar Jar was for Jet. Right, but um, Yeston was keeping his, his big surprise in the tank for the end of the album. So on the ninth track, he wanted to bring in a brand new Star Wars character, Yoda. Remember, Empire Strikes Back was just a few months old at this point, and Yoda mania was in full swing. Kids love Yoda. And Yeston wanted to put like a serious message song in at the end of the, uh, the, the oh, what would you even call it? The saga of making toys <laughs> <laughs> in a workshop. So when, when S-Claus finally arrives... I guess he was supposed to bring Yoda with him. And uh, and the song was called The Meaning of Christmas. And Yoda was going to sing that. Um, and, you know, it was all going to be very, very exciting. Mm. But uh, he, he, Yeston was also, he wasn't doing it all himself. He was working with some co-writers to take the burden off him a little bit. And we'll get into that a little bit later. Now, because Lucasfilm was on board, the producers had access to the big stars of the films. But the problem was that none of them could sing. So Carrie Fisher made a Fist of the Life Day song on the holiday special, but neither she nor Harrison Ford nor Mark Hamill were singers. Having said that, I would kill for an album of Harrison Ford Christmas songs. <laughs> that would be, uh, well, far preferable yeah. to this. Uh, and, you know, obviously Chewbacca, he, he's, he's pointless. He's not going to help you at all. So they could get one of the cast who could sort of kind of sing. So Yeston wrote uh, with C-3PO in mind, and Anthony Daniels enters the story here. Yeah. Despite being in two of the biggest films ever made, Daniels still wasn't a huge star in terms of facial recognition, right? He was hidden behind the mask the whole mm. time. No one look, knew what it looked like. Um, so he he wasn't sort of going on to do bigger and better things in movies. Mm. He was rehearsing for a play in London when the call came through to do this Christmas album, this weird little kooky Christmas album in New York. Mm. Um, they wanted him for a week, but he could only do like a day for them, really. <laughs> <laughs> so he finished up his rehearsals on Friday afternoon, got the, the Concord to JFK that night. All sounds very romantic. It does. Um, he got into a limo at 9 a.m. Saturday morning with a bottle of champagne, went straight to the studio, got straight into it. And he, he talks, um, I've, uh, I've heard him talk about being in that limousine with champagne, like, you know, hitting potholes and champagne <laughs> spilling all over him and everything. It was just kind of awkward. So he probably didn't get to drink an awful, awful lot of it, but he probably wishes he had. Drunk. Leave it to Anthony Daniels to find a way to complain about a story about being ferried around in a limousine with champagne, though. He is C-3PO, really, yeah, isn't he? Yeah, it's true. Yeah. So uh, Yeston recalls, um, Daniels wasn't a singer, so he had to sort of Rex Harrison the whole thing. I taught him how to do that. 
Um, on the record, Daniels uses a technique known as Sprechgesang in the German, which just literally means spoken singing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's more a recitation of the of the words than actual singing. And Rex Harrison, uh, the aforementioned Rex Harrison, who played Henry Higgins in the musical My Fair Lady, was famous for doing that kind of thing. Yeah, so a, a jet-lagged and, and slightly tipsy Daniels, knocked off at 6pm that night, came back in at 7am on Sunday, worked until 3pm, and then hopped on a flight straight back to London. And that was him. Yeah. One and done. Of course, he, uh, Anthony Daniels isn't the only celebrity to appear on the album. So here is uh, here's where the magic uh, b- yeah. begins. So Tony Bon Jovi had a second cousin, John, who was at the time about 17 years old, Desperately wanted to be a singer. Tony couldn't get him a record deal, no matter how hard he tried. So he tried to find a way to backdoor his cousin <laughs> into stardom through Christmas in the Stars. It's a little bit like the Harrison Ford Carpenter story. So, you know, the stories of Harrison Ford hanging around Lucasfilm, doing a little bit of carpentry here and there, mm. until Lucas eventually uh, cast him in the film. So John was working at the power station, sweeping floors, running errands, or at least that's how the legend goes. Yeah, um, Tommy used to work on the docks. <laughs> Johnny used to work sweeping floors at the record studio. That's right. Um, and then, um, so so John got involved. You know, they were they were looking for someone with a with a certain kind of voice to to sing on one of these tracks. Um, John got his first writing credit and singing credit on the album. He actually wrote the track "The Odds Against Christmas." Uh, and he sang the lead on a song called R2-D2, We Wish You a Merry Christmas. Miko had written that, but he couldn't sing it himself. He wanted someone with a high voice to sing the lead on that, and, and that's why John got the call. Mm. Um, and they put together a choir of little kids, uh, which Miko and Tony sort of rounded up from the local high schools. And, and I think that some of them were kids of some uh, executives who'd been involved with Lucasfilm Productions as well. Oh, wow. Um yeah, and they were all aged like five to eleven, and I read that they divided them into groups, and they they divided them into like four groups. I think and some of them couldn't sing that well, so they mic them down. Some of them could sing quite well, they mic them up. Right. Yeah, so they were they were all in different corners of the power station, all assembled, eating ham sandwiches and having a great old time. <laughs> um, and yeah, uh, that that was the way that all went down. And then three years after that. John did finally score that big deal uh, with Mercury Records on the strength of a song he wrote called Runaway. And that was where John Bon Jovi, spelled B-O-N space J-O-V-I, was born. Yeah. And he said in the past that he has no regrets about uh, taking part in this thing. Uh, he, he didn't... <laughs> There was an oral history of uh, of this Christmas album on uh, on Forbes a few years ago, and John Bon Jovi said it was cute, it was funny. I got my one hundred and eighty dollars, and that was the end of it. Mm. Um, so, other celebrity wise, Lucasfilm at one point sent a guy down in a Vader costume to the recording studio as a bit of a PR stunt, uh, which Miko joked at the time was to make sure everything was going according to plan. It sounds a <laughs> bit sinister, um, but then. We're getting near the end of recording the album now, and out of the blue, George Lucas alters the deal. Yeah, so you might remember earlier on, Baz mentioned that uh, that Maury Yeston was keen to bring uh, Yoda on board to sing The Meaning of Christmas. Uh, now, Frank Oz could sing, as evidenced by The Muppet Show, but his schedule on The Muppet Movie meant he couldn't do the recording. Yeston says the excuse was that because Oz played Miss Piggy, he couldn't break character and be Yoda during the time he was filming as Miss Piggy. Uh, I never thought of Frank Oz as particularly method. How about you? I, I never thought of him as that as well, but I'm, I do wonder about that excuse. 
I'm pretty sure he plays multiple characters in the Muppets. Yeah, on I'm a regular sure basis. Switches, I'm sure he switches between them like within five minutes. Yeah. So I I don't buy that story. I'm sure that might have been what Yeston was told or what Miko and Tony were told. But I think there may have been a more sinister motive. So I'm, I'm sure <laughs> I'm sure Frank Oz and George Lucas were pretty tight by then. Yeah. And if Lucas didn't want this album, if he changed his mind about this album, he probably could have called on his mate Frank to try and torpedo it. Yeah, yeah, very possibly. So, um, do do you think that maybe um, maybe Frank was told not to do this by Lucas on pain of death once he changed his mind? Uh, possibly. I think it was a good call, no matter who was making it, uh, and to 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 leave Yoda out of this. I think yeah. uh, it was it was a wise decision. Uh, you know, history would, would sort of <laughs> bear that out. I think with, with the news that uh, Frank wasn't going to be available, Miko and Tony also got a message saying the whole album's down, the whole album's cancelled. Oh, wow. Yeah. Now, there's a reason for this. Lucas, as we've said before, famously hates the holiday special. Mm. Wish to bury every copy. So you can imagine he was probably pretty cautious about putting his name to something else that someone else was doing that may not have turned out quite so well. Yeah. So his chief objection turned out to be some of the lyrics that Yeston wrote for Yoda, which referenced the birth of Christ. Um, George was really, really worried about mixing the metaphors of the Force with Christianity. Um, Yeston identified that the problem song was this meaning of Christmas song that he'd written for for Frank Oz to sing as Yoda. And here are the lyrics that I guess Lucas was worried about. Mm. I will tell you about many, many years ago on a planet far from here. There appeared a new star shining for a single year. Men were far more different then, much they did not understand. Right. It's not that I think Lucas was wrong to object to these lyrics. I think it's good that you know he he yeah. wants to keep a separation of between the force and Christianity, and you know not not let the metaphors get too mixed up. It's more, it blows my mind that this was all he objected to. Yes, uh, I know. Did, uh, did he not hear what do you get a wiki for Christmas when he already owns a comb? Yeah, I mean, if you listen to the album, if he's worried about you know references to Christianity. On the album, C-3PO is somehow aware of Albert Einstein and H.G. Wells and the Magna Carta and <laughs> Japanese people. And That's right. there's a number of references in the album to very Earth uh, things. So it's strange that this would be the one that tripped George up. <laughs> so uh, it, it was the battle was on then to save the project because, um, you know, Tony and, and, uh, and Miko and, and Yeston had poured their little hearts into this and probably were hoping that a lot of money was going to pour back out of it. Yeah. So uh, so it was Yeston finally that called the vice president of Lucasfilms at the time, Sid Gannis. And uh, he claims he explained down the phone how Broadway works to Sid. <laughs> <laughs> and Yeston said, I said, hi, you don't know me. I'm completely unknown, an insignificant songwriter who's involved in this album. And we've just heard it's cancelled because of this. Mr. Gannis on Broadway when we do these shows, if the song is not working for any reason, we don't close the show and lose all the production money. We repair it. The meaning of Christmas was an attempt to have us sing about the religious connotations and the message of Christmas. But Christmas isn't just Jesus Christ. It's also Santa Claus, wreaths on every door, decorating your Christmas tree. It's a Yule log and families coming together to give gifts. Let me rewrite the lyric. And he said, okay. <laughs> Look, I'm going to go out on a limb here and guess that Sid Gannis had no idea what this project was. <laughs> yeah, he probably didn't. He's like, I don't know who you are, what this is in reference to, but sure, okay. 
So, uh, so Yeston did rewrite the lyric to what he calls a shallow, treacly, insignificant and cliched list of Christmassy kinds of things. Um, you'll hear it when you listen to the meaning of Christmas, the way it ended up yeah. on the album. Can we, can we just point out, when Yeston talks about that they made him change it to a shallow, treacly, insignificant, <laughs> cliched list of Christmassy kind of things, the implication there is that the rest of the album that he had written was not already a shallow, treacly, insignificant, cliched list of Christmassy kinds of things. And I, I would dispute the record there, Mr. Yeston. <laughs> well, say what you like about it. He, he saved Christmas for himself and, and Tony and Miko anyway. This is true. Uh, yeah, as I said, he knew everyone had worked really hard. He didn't want everyone to just, you know, lose everything they'd worked on and I guess aside from everything else he knew it could launch his career this was Yeston's first commercial writing credit this was before he did nine you know it was two years before he did nine yeah um so you know that this was uh was something he really wanted for his own career he couldn't have known it would launch John Bon Jovi too but it did um and yeah there was uh there was always there was always the thought of royalties in the back of everyone's minds yeah and look I'm sure that doesn't hurt yeah so Yeston had supplied demos of the songs he'd written with him singing the parts, but on three of them, uh, Miko and Tony couldn't find anyone in the limited time they had available to do it better, so they asked Yeston to step up and record the tracks for the albums. He didn't want to put his name on it at the, the very outset of his career, um, so he called the recording artists of those songs the Star Wars Intergalactic Droid Choir and Chorale. He also did the part of S. Claus on The Meaning of Christmas, um, so that's him delivering the central and, you know, fairly schmaltzy now, as, as he would say, because of Lucasfilm's interference, uh, message of the album in lieu of, uh, Yoda laying down some wisdom. Can I just say, how difficult do you think it would be to write a song for Yoda to sing? Like, he can't even speak in the <laughs> patterns. How could you, you know, how can you rhyme it when he's putting sentence structures all over the place, really? Well, Weird Al found it yet, by the way. <laughs> yeah. you know, it, can, it can be done. Uh, so in the end i mean lucas may have allowed the gang to make the record but let's be honest he wasn't very helpful Mm. so the album was unceremoniously released no promotion uh very sort of restrained album cover uh with a painting of r2 and 3po uh, not very prominently in the frame in uh, s clause's workshop no star wars logo now the, the artwork was by uh ralph mcquarrie the the legend, the goat of Star Wars artists. Mm. But, I mean, it didn't do a great job of selling the album and, and making it kind of leap, leap off the shelves. No, it was a very pretty painting, but it didn't say this is a Star Wars Christmas album. Mm. It didn't really sell it, you know? It, it didn't leap off the shelves. It didn't scream, hey, here's C-3PO in a Santa hat. You know? Yeah. If, if it had just been... Have you seen the cover for Galactic Funk? Yeah. It's basically like two people in weird spacesuits grinding on each other. Yeah. Yeah, that's what you want. Yeah, would have been a little weird for a Christmas album, but it definitely would have leapt off the shelf. Well, C three P and R two D two grinding. Now, unlike uh, Galactic Funk, which was a massive hit, uh, Christmas in the Stars was largely a flop. The novelty song "What Can You Get a Wookie for Christmas?" They're all novelty songs, let's be honest. But "What Can You Get a Wookie for Christmas?" hit number sixty nine on the Billboard Top one hundred uh, for a week. Yeah, presumably that week was. The week of Christmas, presumably. Uh, I think it was maybe. I think it was three weeks after it came out, so that might have been Christmas week. I think it came right. out at the end of November, yeah. But uh, there, there could have been a, a more sinister reason for it being a flop than just being bad. Mm. Um, two days after the album came out, Yeston went to the corporate offices of RSO Records, who were behind releasing the thing, and the door. He found the door was locked. Um, so you know, he knocked. There's no answer, and eventually he discovered they'd gone out of business that day. 
and they were never heard from again. Yeston says he found out later that it was because of a lawsuit that was being threatened against them, and they just decided, because I guess they didn't have that much money, they'd just close up shop and cut their losses and, and just disappear. And that's part of the reason this album's super rare. They, they only pressed 150,000 of them, and that was it. So when you think about Galactic Funk selling 2 million copies, this yeah. physically couldn't. Yeah, that's true. Do you think, though, that when Yeston went to the offices of RSO Records <laughs> and the door was locked and they were out of business, there must have been a moment, if he's a self-aware man, yeah, you'd have to have a moment questioning whether any of this had actually happened. <laughs> whether whether you you had actually dreamt this entire later. thing, yeah. <laughs> like, wait, did I record a Christmas album with C three PO and R two D two? Because nobody is here now to verify any of this actually happened. I don't want to attract any lawsuits to force material, but if George Lucas wanted this album shut down by hook or by crook, yeah, that, that would be a good way to do <laughs> that it. would be the way to do it. Yeah, right? and I'm not saying that happened, but that would be a good. We're way not to saying do it. it didn't happen. I'm, I'm saying that if I was in his situation, I'd probably have done that. Yeah, if I did it by George <laughs> yeah. Lucas. So, so the legacy of the album, well. Some people remember it differently. Um, Anthony Daniels remembers it like this. He says, some of my friends who heard it were, you know, I have proper actor friends who were a bit askance at some of the things I get up to. It's a fairly esoteric piece of art. Some people would be afraid of owning up to listening to it. Possibly they did under the dead cover of night with a torch or whatever, but it's a fairly wacky thing. And it's a sort of charming Christmas thing. You can get away with it at Christmas, he said. Yeah. Um, Yeston's talked about it. He says that it kind of disappeared and that it was famous as this really awful thing, like carry the musical or whatever. Uh, so he found some reviews of it on Amazon and found people saying, Oh, our family for 25 years, every year, so we've pulled this thing out and it's so silly and we sing and have a good time and it's fun. So there are people who love the album. There are, yeah. It was re-released, I think, in the 90s as a CD. Mm. So there, there are a few people who've got hold of it through that. And that's how I first found it. I was yeah. working in a, a bookstore at the time. And it was a it was a super weird special order that I had to like send away to some crazy warehouse in America for. So it was it was hard to get even then. Yeah, yeah, but uh, but very much worth it. Yeah. Now, Yeston has said that. Now I know there are a, a massive number of people who who dumble over this album, and I understand it. It's not rocket science. It's not Sweeney Todd, and I get it. And then he's 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 defended some of his lyrics. He he said. Uh, you know, lyrics like, there's a kind of sound that you won't find in my memory core. When you add it to a note, that sound is just before, and another one after that, and another three and four. And suddenly, you're singing notes galore. If you will only give it a try and sing it clearly through, your voice will float like a feather, and we'll sing together, R2. He says, I'm not embarrassed by that lyric, nor am I embarrassed by your every friend is betting there's a great duet inside you. It was great fun to do. I would argue he should be embarrassed by those lyrics, but that's that's <laughs> I, neither here nor there. I would argue that those lyrics are completely contradicted by Anthony Daniels' performance. How so? He, he's not singing anything well. completely <laughs> true. His voice isn't floating <laughs> like a feather. He's just basically fussing around in his normal C-3PO yeah. mode. Yeah, this is true. <laughs> this is true. <laughs> now, uh, you, you mentioned how hard the album was to, to track down a copy of back yeah, in the day. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are nine tracks on the record, but Tony Bon Jovi says they originally laid down 18 tracks. <gasps> nine tracks are missing. He doesn't have the masters, but someone does. Mm. Do we think it's Lucas? 
Yeston says he's happy those songs are lost in time, and it's probably for the best. But I mean, yeah, so there's a morbid curiosity. It's there. not him. It's not Tony. It's not Miko. Or they would probably have surfaced by now, as you know, because those guys are up for a giggle. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so if someone's bought them, they're they're either still in that locked building at RSO Records, <laughs> <laughs> or someone's bought the rights. And you know, who who goes around buying rights to everything? People like Paul McCartney or Prince, yeah, uh, or George Lucas. George Lucas, yeah. yeah. Somewhere in the the Lucas film, the the Skywalker Vault. So, I mean, regardless of who owns those masters, I mean, the album is probably best remembered today, if it's remembered at all, for being Bon Jovi's uh, first gig. I mean, how many Bon Jovi fans do you think would actually know that? (laughs) Probably not too many. I would say more now than back in the nineties. Because when when this was re-released, I think it took a while for the penny to drop. Yeah, you know that that this was the same guy. Yeah, it yeah. doesn't sound like the uh, the same guy from you know who did Slippery When Wet. Yeah, I'd, I'd yeah, that's for sure. I'd say it's probably something where this album's had a little bit of a renaissance in the last few years. I mean, like all things Star Wars. I mean, and all things catchy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, certainly like since the Disney sale, every Christmas there's sort of a. Uh, there's a few stories that float around about, you know, the Christmas in the Stars album. So It seems to fit better now as a Disney thing, doesn't it? Yeah, true. You know, it, it's almost something that you can imagine them revisiting. Not doing the same album again, but doing a different Star Wars Christmas album. Maybe even yes. a, a good one. Oh you know, my god. Get Alan Menken involved. I'm 100% on board. <laughs> uh, Daisy Ridley can sing, I believe. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Oscar Isaac can sing. We've had a whole hour, a whole film of him singing. Yeah. Uh, Adam Driver sings in that movie as well. Uh, the, right, the, yeah. the, the, the Lewis Davis inside Lewis mm-hmm. Davis. So it's coming together. John Boyega. I feel like John Boyega can do anything. He can yeah. probably sing. Yeah. Kelly Marie Tran. Do we know if she can sing? She looks like a Disney character. Yeah, um, let's say she can sing. Let's just say she can she sing. Can sing. <laughs> she'd, she'd be so positive. I feel like her positivity would get her through. Yeah. And even if it was a C-3PO sing-song type of type of thing. Anthony Daniels is still hanging around. Yeah. He, I'm sure he'd love to reprise. Uh, He's up for anything. Yeah. Star Wars now, yeah. That's right. That's right. Harrison Ford's probably out. I think we can safely say. Yeah. Let's hit this one out. <laughs> Hamill. Uh, Hamill sings on the killing joke. Yeah. Uh, Hamill, Hamill can sing. Now he must have taught himself in the intervening years. Yeah. That's he can right. Sing pretty well. That's right. It's one of his powers. Force projection yeah. and singing. He's, he's all about the vocal talent. That yeah. That's has right. Been for a long time. That's right. Yeah. So I think uh, I think we've got something here, Baz. Yeah, I think so we've got to have a word to the folks at Lucasfilm about bringing back the the Star Wars Christmas album. For... You know what? If you made this, if you did a new Star Wars holiday special, essentially with the new cast, mm. people wouldn't hate it as much as they hate the Last Jedi. <laughs> <laughs> Not us, obviously. No, yeah, but, it would it would have a um, higher Rotten Tomatoes audience. Yeah, rating I'm speaking that's here worth. mostly about the people I've been fighting with on Twitter all weekend. <laughs> And their ilk, yeah. No, I could, I could see it happening. I think, like, if if next year if we got some sort of Disney Star Wars Christmas album, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be shocked. Yeah, and I, I don't, I don't think I'd hate it. Yeah, you know, even if it was terrible and cheesy like this one, I still like this one. It's still, <laughs> it's still a fun little piece of Star Wars lore, and it brings in a couple of strange real world influences. Yeah, and connections that you know are surprising. It's, it's, uh, yeah. It's like the force that surrounds Bon Jovi, surrounds us and binds us. <laughs> I mean, and, and not all not all of the songs are completely. I mean, the odds against Christmas, the one that Bon Jovi wrote. Mm. I feel like that does a good job of like incorporating Star Wars, 
uh, you know, it feels in character for three PO that yeah. one. Yeah, that it's a little weird More that he knows about the history of the settlement of America yeah. on on that song, and it goes to some strange places for a Christmas song. But you know, it at least fits with three PO's character, so that's something. Yeah. Do yeah. you do you have a favorite? Is there a favorite track on that? So the odds against Christmas would would be Gun to My Head. That would be the one that I would mm. choose to listen to again. Do you have a favorite? <sighs> Look. It- uh, I, if, if gone to my head, I'm, I'm going to say, "What can you get a wiki for Christmas?" <laughs> well, it was the single, yeah. so Be- because clearly you would have done well as a record executive in the '80s. It's, it's so ridiculous yeah. and so out there, and the vocals are so bad. I mean, they're kind of sung through a vocoder by someone pretending to be a really bad jerky kind of robot, <laughs> not not one like C-3PO who speaks like a normal human, yeah, but someone who talks like a robot used to talk. <laughs> Um, so it's, it's, it's quite a thing. Yeah. It's quite a thing to see. Yeah. And it's, yeah. Um, I mean, you know, I, I listen to it again just to refresh my memory, but I'm one of those weird people that does pull out every Christmas yeah. and give it at least one listen. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, I don't know. Christmas and Stars is all right. The, the intro song, it's kind of jolly and, and yeah. it's got the sleigh bells thing going on and it's, you know. Yeah, it, it reminds you how good this thing maybe can be, and then it kind of tails off <laughs> <laughs> over the next eight tracks into absolute nonsense. So, uh, look, that's that's Christmas in the Stars. Uh, you know, as as we say, obviously now Christmas and Star Wars so closely uh, associated, and and plenty of plenty of chances to dig out Christmas in the Stars uh, and and listen to it again. Yeah, so now. it's it's easy to do that now. It's yeah, on, it's on Spotify. I mean, this is. How far we've come in the last twenty years or so? Yeah. You know? Rather than me having to send away for this thing, and, <laughs> and it takes four weeks to get there, and it costs a lot of money, you can just press a button, and wow, it's in it's in your uh, your ears right then. That's right. It's a Christmas miracle, everybody. Yeah. <laughs> so go out and go out and listen to Christmas in the Stars this uh, Christmas, and listen to Star Wars and other galactic funk to start your twenty eighteen. Yeah, that's funk. right. Ring in yeah. the New Year. Put that on a New Year's Eve. Absolutely. Yeah. If you've enjoyed this uh, this little history of the making of Christmas and Stars, tell us about it. You know, drop us a little line and, and tell us if it's featured in your Christmas celebrations. In the yeah, past. absolutely. Let us uh, hit us up at Force Material on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, etc. Let us know uh, which of the absolute bangers on Christmas and the Stars <laughs> is on your rotation this Christmas. Uh, I'm Ron Williams. I'm Baz McAllister. And you've just taken your first step into a larger world. <laughs>